Good evening, everyone. This is the Theology Central Podcast. It is Thursday, June the 30th, 2022. It is currently 8.06 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. So what are you doing this evening? What are you doing? What what have you been doing this evening? Now, if you're listening live, you're actually listening to me right now. So for those listening live, thank you for tuning in. I'm sorry if I interrupted your evening. I don't know what you're doing, but I have a question for you. You, you want to listen to a sermon together? Does that sound like a fun thing to do? Do, do you want to do that? Do you, want to, do you want to sit down and listen to a sermon together? We're going to do one of our famous sermon reviews, all right? That's what we're going to do. And remember the way the sermon reviews work. It's really designed just like that. It's like, you know, hey, what are you doing tonight? Well, I'm not really doing much. You want to listen to a sermon together? Great. Okay, grab a Bible and a notebook. I got my Bible and notebook. And let's, we'll hit play on a sermon and we'll we'll listen. We'll stop, talk about it. Listen, stop, and talk about it. I don't, I don't listen to the sermon first so that I can, you know, rehearse what I'm going to say. It happens in real time. Sometimes sermon reviews turn out to be very interesting and very beneficial. Sometimes they turn out to be somewhat disappointing, but you never know when you are listening to sermons. Sometimes you find those sermons that are very convicting and you learn, or you are sermons that are really bad, but that still, that still turns out to be a good thing because it challenges you to go look things up or to do further study. Sometimes you're just kind of done with the sermon and you're kind of like, uh, well, can't say it was bad. Can't say it was good. Can't say much of anything about it. When that happens, well, then the sermon reviews are not that exciting. So you either, either you want it to be really good or really bad. You just don't want it to kind of be like, well, I don't really know what to say. But I never know what's going to happen, so that makes this fun. So if you if you know anybody else who likes the sermon reviews, contact them right now, because here on the Theology Central podcast on this Thursday evening, well, we're about to do a sermon review, all right? Here is how it all started. Let me see if I can pull up the date here. When did I get sent this? Uh, on June the 19th, 2022. Someone suggested a sermon. Who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? That is what they suggested. And this fits perfect with, well, where I'm going to do this review. I'm going to do this review for our series, the Bible study exercise, because we've been working on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit now for a number of weeks and we've got at least one more week to go working on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. I've given people assignments. We've done so many different things, covered so many different issues. Hopefully something in the study has been beneficial. But since we're getting closer to the end, I thought we would have a little fun. So, hey, someone suggested a sermon review. Do you want to listen to a sermon together? This fits perfectly. So we're going to listen to, to a sermon together as a part of our Bible study exercise series where we're studying the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So someone suggested a sermon called Who is the Holy Spirit by A.W. Tozer. That means this is an, an older sermon. This is a, I guess we can call it a sermon classic, a classic sermon Let's pull up some information, or not a lot of information. I want to get us at least the dates. Uh, Give me one second here. I didn't think about this before, which I should have. Um, See, A.W. Tozer, he was born April the 21st, 
1897, and he passed away on May the 12th, 1963. April the 21st, 1897, and he died in 1963. I do not know when this sermon was preached. I don't think I have a date or anything of when this sermon was actually preached, but somewhere during his ministry. And right now, if you go to the YouVersion Bible app and you look for us, Theology Central, and you make us your ministry of choice or church of choice, you'll see that the featured plan right now is a devotional plan dealing with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit as taught by A.W. Tozer. It's there not because I necessarily agree with everything, but just to continue to add different perspectives on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit so that you're getting my perspective, you're getting the perspective from the curriculum, and you're getting, well, the perspective from A.W. Tozer, and now tonight you're going to get my perspective again along with A.W. Tozer. So you're getting a lot of information for this series, and hopefully you... um, Hopefully you have benefited from it, but are you ready? All right, Thursday evening. I don't know what what things look like where you live, but right behind me, there's a window that overlooks the street here in Abilene, Texas. And well, it's still pretty light out, but you can tell that the sun is starting to set or the earth is starting to turn. Okay, but you get the idea. The the sun is slowly starting to set, right? It's, it's, It's that time of evening. It's kind of quiet. There's, there's no one here in my house, so it's quiet, and I'm here. I've got Bibles. I've got notebooks. i got something to drink, and uh, well, I'm ready to listen to a sermon. So are you ready? I'm giving you every opportunity to get everything you need, all right? Grab something to drink. Grab a Bible. Grab a notebook. Let's listen to a sermon together again by A.W. Tozer. The sermon is called who is the Holy Spirit? And we're doing this as a part of our series, our Bible study exercise series, where we've been studying the doctrine of the Holy Spirit now for weeks. Hopefully, you, if you have, if this is your first time to ever tune in, you want to listen to all of our series on uh, Bible study exercise, because I think they're very beneficial and very helpful, but you'll definitely want to go back and listen to everything we've done in regards to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. There is much you may disagree with, I don't know why. I don't know how anyone could disagree with me, but I've been told that people disagree with me. It's, it's just, it's, it's, it's very hard always being right and everyone else being wrong. I'm joking. I'm joking. All right. Are you ready? I'm I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to take a few minutes to make sure everyone is ready because, because once you jump in, well, we've got a long ways to go. This is not a, um, a super long sermon, so I, I may take this all the way until we're done. I may, I may try to just, instead of having to come back for a part two. So I hope you're, I won't try to take too much of your evening, but I, I hope you're ready to do, to go, all right? If if you're listening live, which we, we know we have at least one person listening live, feel free to ask any questions, post your thoughts or comments. I will make sure I'm checking the iPad the uh, so that I won't miss any of the um Comments. In fact, I'm going to go open up the Spreaker app right now. I'm going to go open this so that we're ready to go. Here we go, right? Sermon review, Bible study exercise. We're kind of bringing all of these two worlds together, and uh, hopefully we're going to have a good time. I'm, I'm, hope, I'm hoping so. I am i don't know what to expect, all right? Here we go. Again, on the Version app, as I, I think I was saying, and then I interrupted myself, on the Version Bible app, if you choose us as your church or ministry, Theology Central, you'll see that we have a featured plan, again, from A.W. Tozer. And uh, not that I agree with everything in it, but just, again, offering you as many perspectives as possible. All right? 
Here we go. If ye love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Stop right here. I'm going to back that up. I just want you to know that's literally how the sermon starts. You're like, wait a minute. He's just, it starts with him just reading. We're not giving a text of scripture. That sounds like it's from the gospel of John is where that sounds like that's from. Uh, so I know, I know it just jumps right in. You're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, you started it in the wrong place. No, that's just how the sermon begins. There's no intro. There's no nothing. It's just boom. It starts with him reading and we don't, are not giving a scriptural reference. Maybe when he's done reading, he'll give us a scriptural reference but I, I think it's, what, John 14, maybe, maybe, or John 15? Somewhere between John 14 and 16. Uh, I'm just, just from the few words I heard, I'm just, now if I'm wrong, well, I'll correct it. All right, here we go. If ye love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, that ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. Verse 26, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Now, in this series of sermons, sometimes I will use the words, the Holy Spirit. Sometimes I will use the words, the Holy Ghost. They mean exactly and precisely the same thing. The old Anglo-Saxon word, ghost, has been turned into our English ghost, and it means spirit. So when we say the Holy Ghost, we're saying in the old Elizabethan and pre-Elizabethan English, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. So it makes no difference which I say, I mean the same thing. Let me start by reminding you that about a half a century ago, the liberals committed a great blunder. And that blunder was the neglect or the denial of the deity of Jesus. They either didn't talk about it at all, or else they explained the deity of Jesus away. They denied or explained away or neglected to mention his lordship over the church. Now, this was a stupid and a dangerous blunder, and it brought inner blindness to thousands and spiritual decay and death to great greater thousands. Now, I always find it interesting when I read old sermons or read church history or listen to older sermons that no matter no matter what you no matter what sermon you read, no matter what book you read, no matter what sermon you listen to, uh, and well, I should state it this way, no matter the year a sermon was preached, a Christian book was preached, 
or or any anything no, no matter what what you pick up no matter what year it occurred no matter what decade it it represents no matter what generation it was preached to one theme shows up over and over and over that doctrinal heresy has entered the church doctrinal heresy has been presented to the church doctrinal heresy is happening inside the church it's it's an issue every generation I, again it doesn't matter you can go to the 1800s 1700s 1500s, 1400s, 1200s, it doesn't matter. Find a sermon, find a book, find anything, read it. I mean, if it's old enough, read it. Obviously, if it's it's a bit more, more modern enough, listen to it, and you're going to hear someone go, this group is doing this, and this group is doing this, and this is a threat to the church, and the church needs to be looking out for this, and we need to be watching for this, because it doesn't matter Listen, it doesn't matter when, one thing is always true. The truth of God's word is always under attack, and there are always those creeping into the church to distort, to change, and try to create a different kind of Christianity that is different than what the word of God calls it to be. It is the it is the burden of every generation. It is the burden of every Christian that there is false doctrine around and we, we we need to be equipped so we're not tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, but that we can expose it, we can we can explain what's wrong with it, and we can present the truth against it. It's all of our responsibilities. Not just mine, it's everyone, it's all of us. It's every single individual Christian. You have a responsibility to be able to, oh nope, that's false. That's false doctrine. Why? To protect yourself so that you don't go along with it. Two, so that you can warn other people about it. And then you need to be so equipped to to speak of it with some level of knowledge that you can explain what's wrong with it to other people. The problem is in every generation, there's plenty of Christians who are, well, I'm sorry, negligent of that responsibility, and they don't pay they don't pay attention to what's happening, they don't care, and they don't know, and they don't do anything about it, which then allows that false doctrine to spread and capture the minds of people who may not have who who has, in some cases, Christian friends who don't care enough to actually step up and try to help them. Now, I'm not saying you have to argue with everyone and fight with everyone, but you just need to know when there's a problem and then look for ways to try to help people who are being manipulated by it. But here we are, we're listening to a sermon, and immediately, what, two minutes in, he's like, the liberals... Uh, and so he's going. And now, when they say liberals in, in this particular context, it's not it's a not 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 necessarily using the term in a political way, using it in a theological way. Theological liberals, they were denying the deity of Jesus Christ, and this led to major problems in the church. Every generation, every era, every decade in the church, there's always a new attack, a new problem, a new false doctrine, a new heresy. It's it can be exhausting, the fact that it just never ceases. It never stops. It never ceases. It never stops. And so it's 2022. We, we have to be on the lookout. We have to be watching. We have to be ever vigilant, looking for which, what's the false doctrine now? Okay, how's it impacting the church? We have to be able to identify it. We have to be able to speak against it with knowledge and with a correct understanding so that we can lead people to biblical truth. We will have to speak biblical truth against it. All right, let's continue. Now, in more recent times, oh, say within 40 years back, the evangelical Christians 
I suppose you know what I mean when I say evangelical Christians. I mean the, uh, the gospel Christians, such as you and I, people who believe the Bible, Bible Christians. And that's what I mean by the evangelical Christians. I mentioned the word evangelical Christian down in the Convention of Doctors in Wheaton last week. And afterward, a fine, distinguished-looking gentleman came down to the front. He said, I am a Methodist, and I don't know what you mean by evangelical. Would you tell me what you mean? So I explained to this good Methodist brother who didn't know the difference between an evangelical and a modernist, what the difference was and what I meant by what I had said. He thanked me and was very courteously and walked away. Now, evangelical Christianity has committed a great blunder over the last years. Okay, now before he goes into the blunder of evangelicalism, I, I think it's important to just note that there was there were some things happening at, at a certain part in church history. You had the modernist, you can call them the liberal, you can call them the Bible critics, Bible deniers, uh, incorrect theology, incorrect doctrine. You had the evangelicals who in, so, in some ways separated themselves from the modernists, but many felt the evangelicals were too, too compromising, even though they were trying to separate themselves from modernism, that they were too influenced by it. They didn't separate themselves enough. They were still too kind with it. They still had the influence of it. They wouldn't, they wouldn't purge themselves of all of its influence. So then you have kind of a breakaway in the evangelical to what you, we would call the fundamentalist. So you had the fundamentalist the evangelicals, and the modernists. And the fundamentalists thought that, no, we needed to fight. We needed to condemn. We needed to separate. We needed to leave any seminaries that were being influenced by, the, by modernists and modernism. We, and so the fundamentalists took a much more extreme and more dogmatic approach. The evangelical took more kind of a, I, I would hate to say, just for summary's sake, a more... A more moderate approach, and then you had the modernists who were the literal liberal. So some would, uh, and I'm using the term not in a political, a theological way, you had the theological liberals, the theological moderates, and then you had the theological fundamentalist, all right? And you could, you could find problems with all of them. We talked a little bit about this when we did our series on the, on the, uh, Ni- the uh, Niagara Creed. We talked a little bit about this history and about this, and I often talk about those very, very important and famous books called the Fundamentals. That was uh, very important in church history. That really, like, hey, we've got to define the fundamentals, and we got to fight for them. And and in many cases, we have to separate from this. But so, I really think you have kind of, I think in church history, it's important to kind of see those three streams: the modernist, the evangelical, and the fundamentalist. I think it's very, very important. So he's talked about the blunder of the modernist. They denied the deity of Jesus Christ. Now he's going to talk about the blunder of the evangelicals. What was the blunder of the evangelicals? I bet you, you could, what do you think it was? What do you think it was? Come on, come on, come on. I'll give you a hundred dollars. If you, obviously it's obvious, you know, I'm not giving anybody a hundred dollars because it's too obvious. It's too simple of an answer. What was the blunder of the evangelicals? Come on, class. Come on, class. Everybody knows this. All right, I'm just assuming everyone's like, I'm not even going to answer because it's too easy, all right? Okay, obviously we all know. Here, here we go. Let's let him tell us. Here we go. 
It has been the neglect for the denial of the deity of the Holy Spirit. I think I ought to modify that, for I doubt very much whether any evangelical ever denied the deity of the Holy Spirit, but we certainly neglect him. And, of course, we have neglected his lordship within the church. Okay, so, the blunder of the modernists was to deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, once you start denying the deity of, the, of Jesus Christ, or denying the deity of the Holy Spirit, then that's no longer biblical Christianity. So you couldn't re be referred to as evangelical. You couldn't even be referred to as a Christian. You'd have to be referred to as an apostate, all right? So let's make that very, very clear. So, I'm glad he corrected himself because I was getting ready to say, hey, if, the, if you have evangelicals denying the doctrine of the whole or the deity of the Holy Spirit, you should have left evangelicalism faster than people trying to get out of Sodom and Gomorrah. You should have ran for your life. Okay, so I'm glad he corrected it. So according to him, the blunder of the modernists was to deny the deity of Christ and the blunder of evangelicalism was a neglect of the Holy Spirit. They begin to neglect the Holy Spirit. And then typically the way this views, they started to neglect the Holy Spirit. This is the way it typically goes when you hear this kind of teaching. The church neglected the Holy Spirit, therefore lost the power of the Holy Spirit, and therefore you ended up with a powerless, worldly Christianity. And the only way to fix that powerless, worldly Christianity is to get back to the Holy Spirit, and then we'll get that We'll get that power back. We'll get that dynamite back. And then all of a sudden, everything will be great. That's a very common way of, of teaching. Let's see if he goes in that direction. Here we go. Now, the result of this, of course, has been this failure to honor the Holy Spirit has been uh, many. The results have been many. For one has been that the fellowship of the church has degenerated into a social fellowship with a mild religious flavor. Well, All right, now, he says the neglect of the Holy Spirit has basically reduced the church, the fellowship of the church, into to simply a social club. All right, that, that's, that's interesting. Um, I, I, I'm assuming he's getting ready to explain. We'll, we'll see. Because I, I, I felt, or at least I have felt and I've seen to have witnessed, I've seen many charismatic churches that clearly emphasize and they definitely do not neglect the Holy Spirit. And in many cases, I see them as nothing more than just a social club, just maybe with a little bit more excitement and emotionalism but it still seems to have the same elements of a social club. Maybe that's just me. Maybe that's uh, maybe I'm I'm wrong in that perception. I, I don't know if the neglect of the Holy Spirit is what causes the church to become a social club. I, I okay. That's, well, let, let's let's let let's listen. I want you to know something about me. It isn't important. But I just want to say it while I'm here, while I have the time that I either want God or I don't want anything at all to do with religion. You'd never get me interested in uh, the uh, old maid social club with a little bit of Christianity thrown in to give it respectability. I either want it all or I don't want any. I want God or I'm perfectly happy to go out and be something else. I think the Lord had something like that in mind when he said, I wish thou wert hot or cold because thou art neither hot or cold. 
I will stew thee out of my mouth. And another result of the failure to honor the Holy Ghost is that uh, so many non-spiritual and unspiritual and anti-spiritual features have been brought into the church. If the average church couldn't run on a hymn book in the Bible, we just wouldn't be able to do it. You know, the church started out with a Bible, and then it got a hymn book, and for years they had a hymn book in the Bible. Now we have to have all kinds of trucks. A lot of people, when they, they couldn't serve God at all without at least one van load of equipment to, to keep them happy. And uh, these, uh, this, all this stuff, uh, this fellowship, now the, the attraction. Okay, now, again, he's, he's th- this, is, this is interesting. Okay, this is interesting. Now, hear me out, hear me out, hear me out. You can put 10 Christians in a room and say, all right, guys, I, I want to write down some problems we're currently seeing in Christianity. Or let, let's write down some of the problems we see currently in Christianity. So here is the problems that he has listed. Number one, the church has become a social club, ladies and gentlemen. Number two, the church seems to no longer be able to think it can simply operate with a Bible and a hymn book. It needs attraction. It needs gimmicks. It needs it needs activities. It needs all of these other things. And, and so, so, so we'll just go with these two. So listen, ladies and gentlemen, what is the cause of this problem? Instead of simply going after the symptoms, we need to determine the cause because if we can go after the cause, then we can root out the symptoms. Now, I like the concept of trying to figure out the cause and not just fighting the symptom. I think that's important. I've seen a lot in church history where people have fought about the church becoming a social club. I have seen a lot of fighting against the church because of its pragmatism, coming in with every gimmick and every idea, and really, they can't, they, you know, they don't think the church can operate with just a Bible and a hymn book. It needs, it needs other, it, everyone always thinks it needs something else. So I, I do believe those are problems in the church. It was a problems in the church when A.W. Tozer was preaching, and it's a problem in the church today. Social clubs who, who seem to think the church has to be filled with everything other than just a Bible and a hymn book. All right. I, I, amen. I agree with that. Now, we get those 10 Christians in a room and say, okay, everyone, identify. Don't tell me how to fight the symptom. Identify how we remove the disease. Tell me what, and, well, first of all, identify the disease so that we can remove it. That's the correct way to state it. So, all right, all right, everyone, we see the symptoms. Now we need to identify the root cause. What is the disease causing this? Now, I think if we had 10 Christians in a room, we would probably end up with 30 different diseases being identified. I think it would look like, you know, someone who feels a little sick and ends up on WebMD, and before they sign off WebMD, they've got cancer, tuberculosis, polio, who knows what they've got. They've got everything, okay? All right, so I think it would be crazy all the different diagnoses that would be being thrown out, But, but in his mind, the cause of these two things is because the church neglected the Holy Spirit. If it wouldn't have neglected the Holy Spirit, it wouldn't become a social club. And if it didn't neglect the Holy Spirit, the church would have still been content with just a Bible and a hymn book. Hmm. I don't know. 
I, we are in a great, I'm in a complete agreement with A.W. Toza here on the symptoms. I don't know if we are, if we are identifying the same disease. Now, if you agree with A.W. Tozer on the disease, fine, great. You can, you can tell me your justification. Or if you think that the problem is something else, you can definitely identify that as well. I, w- I would love to get everyone started because I, I hope you realize these two problems are still a problem in the church today. I mean, you look at your church. Is it just a Bible and a hymn book? Is it? I, I think it's a good question. Is your church sometimes feel more like a social club? Than anything else? I, I think those are good questions. And if it is, what well, what's the disease? What's the disease? Is it, hey, we've neglected the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. If we get back to that, boom, we can fix all of that. I I'm not convinced of that. He hasn't he has he has articulated the symptoms which I'm in agreement with. I'm not necessarily agree in agreement that what he's identifying as the disease is the disease. Let's continue that we have to win people and keep them coming. It may be fine, it may be uh, elevated, it may be cheap, it may be degrading, it may be coarse, it may be, may be artistic. It all depends upon who's running the show, you know. But because the Holy Spirit is not the center of attraction and the Lord is not the one who is in charge, it, uh, we, we, uh, we bring in all sorts of anti-scriptural and unscriptural uh, claptrap to keep the people happy and keep them coming. And now uh, the horrible part about that isn't that uh, that is true, but the horrible part about it is that it needs to be at all. That uh, the, the great woe is not the presence of religious toys and trifles, but the necessity for them that the presence of the eternal spirit is not in our midst. The most important one that could possibly be here tonight is the Holy Spirit. And uh, the, um, the, the, the tragedy and woe of the hour is that we neglect him, and then in order to make up for his absence, we have to do something uh, to keep our own spirits up. Okay. Now, this gets a little, mm, I get a little worried here theologically. Try to stay with me. He's acting as the reason that we come up with all these gimmicks, fleshly concepts to keep people, to keep them happy, to keep them coming, right? That's one of the diseases. Remember, uh, the, 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 these diseases that he's pointing out, we, we agree with that there's, there's a problem. And the church, I completely agree. The church has become a social club and we have to come up with every gimmick. But he's indicating not not only that we've neglected the spirit, we've so neglected the spirit, he's almost like he's not present. That he's no longer in the midst of us. That he's no longer there. And that makes me a little concerned. What do you mean by that? Because first of all, if the church is made up of believers and they're truly believers... Well, then they have to have the Holy Spirit, so the Holy Spirit is present, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. So what do you mean he's not there? He, he, wouldn't he be inside all of those people 
who are like clamoring for all of the extra things. And you say, well, no, they're not saved. Well, then it's not that we need to get, it's not that we need to, if they're not saved, then the issue is not neglect of the Holy Spirit. The issue is they need the gospel in order to be saved so that they'll be indwelt by the Spirit. So this creates a theological dilemma here. If you're claiming that all the people there are saved, then they're all, they are all indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So he is present. If you're saying he's not present, then you're claiming all the people are lost. Then it's, when of course they're not going to neglect the Holy Spirit. They're going to neglect the Holy Spirit because they're not saved. So it's not about we need to teach the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. You need to preach the gospel and call people to faith. So when he says that he's not present, I, I, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? If, if believers are there, the Holy Spirit is there because we are the temple of the living God. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God. He is present wherever I go. He's present wherever believers are. This, this, <laughs> so, so is what, and almost like, it, 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 I know he's not trying to say this, but it would also most be implying to me that the reason the church has become a social club and the reason the church needs all of these gimmicks is because there's no one present. There's no one saved. Okay, now, okay, now this, this, okay, this is a good point. Someone just asked. But even if, even if they were lost, um, even if they were lost, is the Holy Spirit everywhere still or no? Now, very true. Now, I will say that some people will say that you can have the omnipresence of God or the omnipresence of the Spirit, but then you can have the kind of a different presence where he's doing something. But yeah, he would still be present. I mean, the Holy Spirit is omnipresent because he's the Holy Spirit. He's deity. Uh, so yeah, he would literally, uh, so would he literally not be at the church if not a single person would say? He would still be there. Yeah, he would still be there. True. He would absolutely, you're absolutely right. He would still be present. He would still be present. He just would not be indwelling these people. Now, if he's present and, but he's not in the people, then you can see why the people are not indwelt by the spirit. In other words, they're not saved. Why they would want a social club and why they would want all the extra stuff and not simply a Bible and a hymn book. Yeah, you could see that. But if they are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, well, then you can't, Hey, you're indwelt with it. You've just been neglecting it because you're neglecting it. Now you want a social club. Yeah, I'm, I'm having, I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to understand where he's going. Maybe, maybe he's going to clarify. Maybe he's going to clarify. I said in Chicago, I talk this way wherever I go, you know. I preach this way at Moody Church and everywhere I go. Some like it, some don't, but they come back. And uh, I said this in our church in the south side of Chicago. Suddenly, in an impulse, I said, There are churches so completely out of the hands of God that if the Holy Ghost withdrew from them, they wouldn't find it out for three months. Okay, well, now, now, he's, now he's indicating, hey, if the Holy Spirit was to leave this place, it would take three months for you to figure it out. Well, then that means that he is present. That means he's present. So I'm trying to figure exactly. Remember, he's the one saying these are the symptoms. The church has become a social club. 
and uh, uh, the church is having is no longer content with just a Bible and the hymn book. He's the one identif- He's saying these are the symptoms, and he's identified the disease as being something with a neglect of the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit not being present. So I guess he's saying we so neglect the Holy Spirit that if he left, it would take three months for anyone to figure out. All right. So, but again, he couldn't leave if people are saved. I, if they're saved, he can't leave because what well, we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. If he quote unquote left, okay, I, I again that would destroy his omnipresence. This just this is just getting all over the place. Okay, but let's just say he did leave. Well, then that would demonstrate nobody in the church was saved. So the issue wouldn't be the neglect of the Holy Spirit. The problem would be the lack of salvation. So, okay, I'm, I'm trying my best to, I'm pr- trying my, my best to stay with this. All right, here we go. All right. Now, if this, ki- if this gets worse and if it gets bad and I start losing my mind, the person who suggested this, they are the bad guy. They are the ones. And when I want you to find them after I'm dead because of a seizure, if this keeps getting worse, I just want you to know they killed me. They killed me. Okay. All right. All right. A little bit of joking, but all right, here we go. All right, are you ready? Here we. Oh, I'm getting nervous. I'm get you. Sometimes when I start reviewing a sermon, I just feel it like, uh oh, uh oh, it's getting, to, it's gonna tip. It's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna tip over, and and it's all gonna go. Well, we're gonna sink from that point on. I, I, I'm trying to understand. I've got. He's pointed out the symptom. And he's identified the disease. I just still don't understand the diagnosis. I still don't really know exactly what the problem is because in some cases, it seems like he's saying the problem is a lack of salvation. But then on the other hand, he's saying it's a neglect of the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's see. Here we go. And then the next day or so afterward, the telephone rang and a woman's voice said, Mr. Tozer, I am not a member of your church. I'm a member of the church on the north side. If you know anything about that great city, you know that being on the north side is like being in another state. It's almost like being in Buffalo from here, you know, just way off there. And she said, I was down to your church last night, and I heard you say that there are churches where the Holy Spirit should desert them. They'd never find it out. And she said, Mr. Tozer, I want you to know that that's what happened in our church. Her voice was very tender and broken, and there was no criticism or, or censoriousness at all. And I tried to console her. I said, well, maybe it's just that he is grieved, or maybe, maybe that he is not given the place. No, she said, it's past that, Mr. Tozer. She said, we have so consistently rejected him in our church, and it's a gospel church, we have so consistently rejected him that he is gone. He's no longer there. Now, I- We've so rejected. It's a gospel church, but they've so rejected the Holy Spirit that he's no longer there. But if she's saved and she is there, the Holy Spirit has to be there because the Holy Spirit indwells her. So is she claiming that there's no one else saved in the entire church? And again, even as someone in the chat has pointed out, even if she's not saved, the Holy Spirit would still be present because, well, he's deity and God is omnipresent everywhere at all times. So when they say not present, what do you mean by that? 
I understand that sometimes there's a distinction between him being omnipresent and then a special presence or or some kind of a a ministerial kind of presence where he's at some kind of work or act active in a, in, in a way. In other words, you can just be present in a general where they are there in a special way. I know we can get into that distinction. The problem, it's not my job to try to make that distinction. It's the problem of the one preaching the sermon to try to make that kind of a distinction. And he's not made that distinction. And isn't it interesting? I do have to ask this question. Isn't it interesting how you can have two people who go to the exact same church, who at least believe something pretty close to similar doctrine, pretty close to the same theology, And one will determine the Holy Spirit is not here. This church has resisted the Holy Spirit, rejected the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not here. But someone else in that very same church will be like, what are you talking about? The Holy Spirit's very much here. The Holy Spirit here is very much active. I wonder how much, I wonder who, who gets to determine. Do we trust our, 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 do we trust ourselves that our perception is right? Or do we question that our perception is wrong? I, ju- I just always find it funny that you can have you can have two people listen to a sermon like that. The Holy Spirit's not present. That man's not been anointed by the Holy Spirit. There's nothing godly about that sermon. And someone else was like, man, I was so convicted. I was so touched by that. The power of the Holy Spirit's on that speaker. It's so weird. Like, I, I think sometimes we make these determinations. We make these dogmatic declarations about ultimate spiritual truth as if somehow we have infallible observation or that our observation is infallible. I just find it interesting. So, so she's contacting him going, Hey, my church, Holy Spirit is gone. Holy Spirit has left. Now he's using this obviously as anecdotal evidence that the problem with the church is basically a neglect of the Holy Spirit, which in some sense causes it to withdraw, leaving the church such in a, such a spiritual state that it becomes a social club and they start and they need other things other than the Bible and a, and a hymn book. All right. Uh, uh, yeah. So someone just said, your feelings get to determine that, of course. I, that, that's the way it works. And when your feelings get to determine it, it's bad news. It's bad news. But okay, okay. Let's let's see where this is going. Let's see where this is going. This is taking, I, I know you're going to start laughing, but I'll just go ahead and say it because I say this every time I review something. Man, this is taking longer than I thought it would. <laughs> okay. I, I know it's a problem, but, but I, uh, okay, I'll just stop. I don't know whether she's right. I doubt whether she is right. I don't believe the Spirit of God ever leaves a church completely, but he can, like the Savior who is asleep on the behinder part of the ship, he can go, so to speak, to sleep and not make himself known and let us get along without him for years. Okay, wait a minute. So he doesn't, he, he didn't think she was right. And he says he, the Holy Spirit doesn't really leave a church. But it, didn't he kind of already indicate that that's the problem? I'm so confused here. So the Holy Spirit doesn't leave. He just kind of goes to sleep. He's kind of like, he's kind of like Jesus in the boat. Jesus kind of just goes to sleep. And, we're, and we've got to go like, wake up, Holy Spirit. We're, there's a storm. Wake up, Holy Spirit. We, is, what? Is that? Okay. I'm trying my best to understand. Trying my best to understand. Well, we'll let him 
talk to him. I just, it just seemed like he was really making kind of an argument. And now he's kind of making an argument against his argument. So, all right, let, but hey, I've done, I've, I, I don't like to be super critical because I can say something in the first half of a podcast episode. And by the second half of the podcast episode, I may have contradicted myself. You've probably heard me do that many times, but I'm, I'm just trying to follow his line of reasoning here. Now, I want to ask, who is the Holy Spirit? That's the subject for tonight. First of all, what is the Holy Spirit? And here I'm going to ask you to, to shake your head real hard and wake up some of the cells that haven't had a good workout since you got out of college or high school, because I'm going to ask you to think with me about something that's a little bit off the beaten track. You know our trouble is, a fellow came church one time, a fine-looking fellow, but obviously wasn't too well-educated. He said, Father Tozer, he said, I'm a, I'm a fundamentalist, evangelical Christian, but he said, I confess I'm getting sick and weary of all these religious clitches that I hear. He meant clichés, of course. And uh, these religious clitches that we have, these clichés, just are repeating the same old cliché over and over again. Well, one of the things I do is not do that. And some people are startled and run and never come back, but others come and to see this great sight and wonder how it is you can say something and not sound like a preacher in saying it. Well, I've worked on that all my life. I've been a preacher since I was 18, but I sure tried hard not to sound like one. <laughs> okay. All right. I love this. All right. Because I think I've set my entire life to like, I don't want to sound like a preacher. I don't want to sound like a preacher. I, I don't like to preach like preachers. I don't like to teach like preachers. I've kind of made it my life goal to like, I don't, I, I, when a lot of people hear me, they're like, you don't sound like a preacher. And now some people hate that. And they're like, I, I wish you would sound more like a, pre I don't want to sound like preachers because to me, there's like a, I, I've said it so many times. I feel like when I, when I go to church websites or I click on a sermon, I'm like, did, did everyone get the same memo? We, we, we have to talk the same and, and give the same, like the same structure to the sermon. I, you know, it's a pleasure to be here. And then tell a little joke. It's like, it's like everyone follows the same template with the same inflection and the same sounding voice. And it's like, nope. I'm not going to do that. And I and I despise the same cliches and the same broken catchphrases. I hate that as well. So I'm glad that some people way in the past, before I was even born, was having some of the same issues because I have the same issues in 2022. Can we just, I think in preaching and teaching, I don't have to follow a template. I just need to be faithful to the text. I think that I can be me, and it's like, no, you got to do it this way, and you got to do it this way. No, as long as I'm faithful to the text, I'm faithful to the text, there should be some freedom in how that is approached. As long as I'm faithful to the text, right understanding, right exegesis. Now, there, there are rules about that when it comes to exegeting a text and hermeneutics. I'm not saying we throw those out, but I'm saying that we shouldn't have to all sound the same and act the same and dress the same and look. Yeah, there should be... So that makes me laugh. He's made it, he's made it not to sound like other preachers. Now, in my estimation, he still sounds a lot like preachers, but that's okay. That's okay. The point is, I, I think it's funny that that's there. So I know that's, that's, that's a detour. I, I want, it's kind of weird 
Because if you, if you, I remember, I always like to analyze structure of sermons, right? So if you, if you see his thesis is there are two major problems in the church. The church has become a social club and the church is no longer content with just a Bible and a hymn book, but it's brought in all kinds of gimmicks and concepts and pragmatism and, you know, fleshly ideas to try to grow the church and move the church forward. He's identified. So his thesis is the church is suffering from two major symptoms and that the problem is the neglect of the Holy Spirit. That, so he's identified the symptoms. He's identified the disease. He's not really explained the disease very well to us, but somehow it's a neglect that makes the Holy Spirit like go to sleep and therefore it's not doing anything. All right. So I, that's, that seems to be the thesis of the sermon. But he's transitioned from the thesis, placing the problem, and his answer is, who is the Holy Spirit? Now, if we just know who the Holy Spirit is, does that fix the problem? Hey, if you know who the Holy Spirit is, then you won't neglect the Holy Spirit. Is that his solution? Let's see. But he's taking a little detour now to say he doesn't try to sound like other preachers, which I find funny. All right, here we go. Well, um... What is the Holy Spirit? Well, the first place, spirit is another mode of being. Now, shake your head real hard on that. Spirit is another mode of being than matter. You know, we'd bump this pulpit. I won't do it because it would spoil the tape, but um, you can pick a thing up and bounce it around. That matter. You're, you're composed of matter. That head you have on there and that body, that matter. But you know, that's only one mode uh, of existence. There's another, and that's at least another, and that's spirit. And uh, the difference between matter and spirit is that matter possesses weight and size and color and extension in space. It can be measured and weighed, and it has form. But the Holy Spirit is not material, therefore he does not have weight nor dimension nor shape nor extension in space. Now, one power of spirit is to penetrate uh, matter, to penetrate things, all substances. The, uh, your spirit, for instance, dwells in your body somewhere, and it penetrates your body and doesn't hurt the body. It's in there penetrating because it's another form. You know, when Jesus had risen from the dead and he was no more mere matter, he came into a locked door where it was locked and shut, and he came evidently through the wall somehow, and he managed to penetrate and get into that room without unlocking it. Now, he couldn't have done that before he died, but he did it afterward. And uh, spirit, then, is, uh, is uh, another kind of substance. It's, uh, it's different from, from material things. And it can penetrate personality. Your spirit can penetrate your personality. One personality can penetrate another personality. The Holy Spirit can penetrate your personality, your spirit. The Bible talks in 1 Corinthians, yes, 1 Corinthians, about the no man knowing the things of God save the spirit of, of the man. man. No man knoweth the things of a man save the spirit of the man that's in him. No man that knows the spirit things of God except the spirit of God, which reveals them. So the spirit of God can penetrate the spirit of man. Now, I want to just say what the Holy Spirit is not. The Holy Spirit's not enthusiasm. 
Some people get enthusiasm, they imagine it's the Holy Spirit. Why, we have people down in uh, our part of the country that can get, get worked up over a song until they're actually sent. You know, they, they say, get sent just by a song. And they imagine that's the Spirit. Not necessarily, because those same people, most a lot of them, go out and live just like the world. And the Holy Spirit never enters a man and then lets him live like the world. You can be sure of that. And incidentally, that's the reason most people don't want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. They want to live the way they want to live and have the Holy Spirit as a bit of uh, something extra. So if the Holy Spirit comes in, you can't live like the world. So how much sin can be present in your life before that now proves you don't have the Holy Spirit. This becomes a slippery slope, all right? So you won't live. So what you're saying is you can have the Holy Spirit and commit all kinds of sin. You just can't live like the world. But what does it mean to live like the world, right? Because I know plenty of Christians who they believe in the gospel. They believe in Christ. Now you're going to say, well, they're not saved, but you got to be careful here. But just there's plenty of people who profess to be Christians who... There's all kinds of sinful things in their life. They still have a depraved nature. They still sin. So what do you mean? Oh, man, this gets so subjective. Hey, you can't have the Holy Spirit. When he comes inside of you, he will not allow you to live like the world. Well, if the Holy Spirit's not going to allow you to live like the world, here's a question. Why doesn't he just, I don't know, not let you ever sin again? Oh, no, 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 no. He's not going to let you live like the world, but you'll still sin. Well, then how much sin can be present before then I have to question the presence of the Holy Spirit at all? How much? How much? This becomes subjective. And, and then basically what it does is you have to create a list. You can't, if you can't be a Christian and commit these sins, all right, so we have our list of mortal sins, but you can commit all of these sins are venial sins. The venial, all the venial sins, the presence of the venial sins does not call into question the presence of the Holy Spirit. The mortal sins call into question the presence of the Holy Spirit. So basically, it's the Protestant version. If you commit the mortal ones, you're no longer in a state of grace. And if you commit the venial ones, you're still in a state of grace. So we have reworked it. If you commit the mortal ones, well, then you don't have the Holy Spirit. But if you commit the venial ones, you still have the Holy Spirit. It's basically a Protestant version of Catholicism. And if I remember correctly, David, even after, even after he had a man murdered, he committed adultery, he tried to cover it up. Remember his confession in Psalm 51? Remember his confession in Psalm 51? This is very important. All right, um, Psalm chapter 51, if I can read it here. Psalm chapter 51, he, may, he confesses his sin, right? He's confessing all of all these sins, and he says, create, and uh, he says, uh, hide, hide uh, thy face from my sins, blot out all of my uh, iniquities, create in me a clean heart and, uh, and renew a right spirit within me, cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He had the Holy Spirit. He had the Holy Spirit. And yet, he says, because he says, don't take it from me. So he had the Holy Spirit, and he was able to murder, 
and he was able to commit adultery and he covered it up. He had the Holy Spirit. Now, we talked a little bit about this in our, in our Bible study exercise on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, that there's a lot of misunderstanding about the Holy Spirit's role in the Old Testament, because a lot of people say, well, people didn't have the Holy Spirit in them, and then you can go to the Old Testament, and there's these passages that says the Holy Spirit was in them. So he said, well, it's different, and we try to make a, a distinction. The point is, David is a don't take your spirit from me, meaning he had the Spirit, even though he committed those sins. Now, what we would say today, if someone committed that sin, they murdered a woman's husband committed adultery, we'd be like, oh, no way, no way they can have the Holy Spirit. But David could have the Holy Spirit and do it. Did Solomon have the Holy Spirit? Did, did the Apostle Paul, who said the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, those I do, did he have the Holy Spirit? Did Paul, who said, with my mind, I follow the law of God, but with my flesh, I, 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 I obey or follow the law of sin or, or serve the law of sin? Romans chapter 7, I think that's verse 25. Did he have the Holy Spirit? This, this preach is so good. The Holy Spirit comes into you, and he will not allow you to live like the world. Amen. Well, everyone walks out and lives just like the world. Oh, you say, well, no, 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 no. They don't do the really bad stuff. Oh, yeah, okay. They're filled with lust. There's lying, backbiting, selfishness, greed, on and on and on and on and on and on. As you might have a diamond stick pin or something very beautiful on for for on your clothing, they want some the Holy Ghost to be added, but the Holy Spirit will not be an addition. The Holy Spirit must be Lord, or He won't come at all. But that's for another sermon. Now, uh, the Holy Spirit is a person. I want you to get that. You can spell that with capital letters if you want to. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's not enthusiasm. He's not courage, nor energy, nor the personification of all good qualities, like Jack Frost is the personification of cold weather, and Santa Claus the personification of wanting to give somebody tie. Uh, that, that's a personification. But the Holy Spirit is not a personification of anything. The Holy Spirit is a person, just the same as you're a person. And he has all the qualities of a person. The Holy Spirit has substance, but not material substance. He has individuality. He is one being and not another. He has will, and he has intelligence, and he has feeling, and he has knowledge and sympathy and ability to love and see and think and hear and speak and desire and grieve and rejoice. He is a person, this Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, I will send him unto you. And I will not leave you comfortless, but he will come, and when he is come, he will teach the, take the things of mine and show them unto you. And the most important thing in the world is that this blessed Holy Spirit is now present here in this church tonight. Jesus, you know, in his body is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty interceding for us, and he will be there until he comes again. But he said, I will send another comforter, the Holy Ghost, the Spirit, and he, he will be my representative, and he will be all that I am. Now, who is the Holy Spirit? I've spoken briefly on what is the Holy Spirit, and I have said he is spirit and not matter. He is personality. He is individuality. He has intelligence and love and a memory, and he can communicate with you, and 
He can love you, and uh, he can be grieved when you grieve him. He can be quenched, uh, as any friend can be shut up if you, if you turn on him. And, and if he's in your home as a guest and you suddenly turn on him, of course, he'll be hushed into hurt silence because you, you wounded him. And so we can wound the Holy Spirit. Now, that's what he is. But who is the Holy Spirit? Well, the historic church said that the Holy Spirit is God. Some of you who attended some of the denominations remember the Nicene Creed. That is quoted every so often. If I recall, it runs something like this. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, begotten of him before all ages, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who with the Father and Son together is worshipped and glorified. Now there's what the Creed said way back there 1,600 years ago. And then uh, there is another creed that was uh, oh, about 1,300 years ago, maybe 14, and that's called the Athanasian Creed. That came into being way back there when a man named Arias stood up and said that Jesus was a good man and a great man, but he wasn't God. He, he wasn't really divine. He was not the, any second person of the Trinity, and there was a man named Athanasius. He said, no, the Bible teaches that Jesus is God, and they had all kinds of controversy about it there. Somebody came to Athanasius and said, Athanasius, the whole world is against you on this. He said, all right then, I'm against the whole world. He didn't mind having him against him, but they had that great creed, that great gathering at Nice, and there they formed the, uh, out of it came the Athanasian Creed. The Nicene Creed is supposed to have been born there, but the church fathers got together and they thought out what the Bible had to say about the three persons of the Trinity. You know, most of us, we're so busy reading religious fiction, we never get around to it. So uh, I thought it might be nice tonight if I, if I, let you, if I took you back about, oh, um, 1,300 years and uh, listen to our fathers tell about who Jesus is. Well, here's what it says. There is one person of the Father, and another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is but one. The glory is equal, and the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Ghost. Now, this is what they said back in the days of Athanasius. They said the Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, and the Holy Ghost is uncreated. The Father's infinite, the Son's infinite, and the Holy Ghost is infinite. The Father's eternal, the Son's eternal, the Holy Ghost is eternal. And yet there are not three eternals, but one eternal. So there are not three uncreated, nor three infinite, but one uncreated and one infinite. So also the Father's almighty, and the Son's almighty, and the Holy Spirit's almighty. Yet there are not three Almighties, but one Almighty. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. Yet there are not three gods, but one God. The Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Ghost is Lord. Yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. So, the Father is God, and the Son is God, 
and so the Father is Lord, and the Son is Lord, and the Holy Ghost is also these things. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created. And the Holy Ghost is of the Father and the Son, not made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. Ah, oh, brother, I don't know what that does to you, but I, that's just like a chicken dinner to my soul. Okay. First of all, anytime a sermon quotes the Athanasian Creed, that's awesome. But let's correct a little bit of history. Athanasius did not write the Athanasian Creed. It was written about 100 years after he died. The Council of Nicaea is 325. The Athanasian Creed doesn't show up till somewhere between the 5th and 6th century. So it's af way after the Athanasian Creed. Uh, it's after, or the, it's way, I'm sorry, it's way after the Council of Nicaea. The Nicaean Creed comes from the Council of Nicaea. The Athanasian Creed shows up a hundred years after Athanasius dies, somewhere in fourth or fifth, or fifth is sixth century. Actually, I believe it's between fifth and sixth century, maybe fourth and fifth. It, it's, it's definitely way after the Council of Nicaea. I'd have, I, again, remember I'm doing this live on the air, so I don't have, I'm, I'm trying to go from memory from, uh, from school. Uh, so you can verify the date of it, but just so that you know, because people hear Athanasian Creed and they think Athanasius wrote it. No, it was a hundred years after Athanasius died. I think is the, uh, the the earliest origin of the creed. It may reflect Athanasian understanding of the Trinity, and it's an absolutely powerful creed that everyone should read. Everyone should know the Apostles' Creed. Everyone should know the Nicene Creed, and everyone should know the Athanasian Creed. You should study it in your church. If your church has never studied uh, any of those creeds, that's a problem. That's a serious, serious problem. That's like a just like a church history 101. A lot of people say, when I study church history, where should I start? Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, and Athanasian Creed. That's a good place to start, right? That's a good place to start. Okay, because and then you can study the Council, Council of Nicaea. Okay, we, I, I don't want to get into too much church history. It's just the way he was explaining that. I'm like, oh, well, okay. I kind of see where you're going, but just you, you got to make sure you understand Athanasian Creed is not from Athanasius. It was 100 years after. And, that's, I'm, and if I'm wrong on any of my dates, correct me. But I, I guarantee you that I'm at least 60% right. Okay, 70, maybe I'm going with 80%. I'm 80% right. I, 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 I think I'm 80% right. Okay, no, I'm going with 90%. Okay, okay, I, I, I'm somewhere close to that. All right, here we go. Here that to know that this has come down the years, that this is what our fathers believed. And do you know what? When that company of Christians met and declared this kind of thing, they tell us that when they met and gathered there, that some of them had their tongues pulled out, some of them had their ears burned off, some of them had their arms torn off, some of them had lost a leg, all because they had stood for this thing that Jesus was Lord to the glory of God the Father, and the Roman had persecuted them under Diocletian and Caligula and the rest of them. And these men were martyrs who hadn't quite died, but were maimed horribly, but old saints of God and learned scholars who knew the truth, and they came there, and they wrote these things up. And okay, I'm also getting confused, because he's, he's referring to Roman persecution, but by the time the Athanasian Creed comes around, 
the Christianity is, is well, do, is the dominant like state religion. Now you have the merging of church and state. Now what would happen is whichever Christian group took over, they would persecute someone else. And Athanasius was ex- exiled how many times? Four times? I can't remember five times. Uh, we studied Athanasius at my church. I gave everyone a little book about a, kind of a biography of Athanasius. We've studied the Athanasian Creed. Someone says Athanasian Creed like, was likely written sometime in 5th century or maybe the early 6th. Uh, Athanasius died in 373 AD, according to Ligonier Ministry. So so it looks like I'm at least halfway right. I, like, I, think, that, I think I'm pretty accurate. I think I'm pretty accurate, maybe. Okay. I, I'm going to go with I was accurate. That's what I'm going to go with. That's the story I'm telling. All right. So, but this is awesome. That he's quoting the Athanasian Creed. Absolutely awesome. Now, to be fair, to be fair, and I've done the same thing as a preacher. I've done the same thing. I'll have something like, oh, I'm going to read this, and it's going to be really, really good. And when you listen to it, like when he read that, the average person sitting there was probably like, this is what it sounded like. Because it's just like, it's so word, the Athanasian Creed, I'm telling you, look it up tonight, all right? It's so wordy. Like every sentence could be taken apart going, wait, exactly what that meant? So in his mind, reading the Athanasian Creed really helps confess who the Holy Spirit is and really confesses the, the deity of Christ and, and the Trinity and all of these wonderful doctrines. So I agree. It's like, uh, what did he call it? Chicken soup to the soul or whatever he called it. Yeah, it, it, it is awesome. It is beautiful. But if the first time you hear it just read like that, it probably doesn't do anything for anyone. I wish it did. In my mind, I'm like, I'm going to read parts of the Athanasian Creed and everyone in the church, when the sermon is over, they're going to be like, Wow. Can you read that again? But, you know, most likely people don't even remember that part of the sermon. So I hate that. But here, I'm not, this is where I'm getting a little frustrated, though. This is where I'm getting a little frustrated. And all, all of us preachers do this. The thesis of the sermon, remember, I'm always analyzing things, is we've got two problems in the church, ladies and gentlemen. The church has become a social club, and the church is bringing in all of these fleshly and pragmatic concepts. The reason they're doing this is they neglected the Holy Spirit. Now he's going into somewhat, not even really a truly doctrinal teaching on who the Holy Spirit is, but he's in his mind, he's telling them who the Holy Spirit is. Is that so? If, if, we t- if he tells everyone who the Holy Spirit is, then that fixes the neglect of the Holy Spirit, and that fixes the pro. I, I, I. I don't, so I, I, he starts off so good. I'm like, let's talk about these problems, but I don't know if he's getting us to a solution. I, I love the fact that he read from the Nicene Creed. I think he read, no, he didn't read the whole thing. I love he read from the Nicene Creed, and I love that he read from the Athanasian Creed. But here's the thing. If you believe the church has abandoned the doctrine of the Holy Spirit or is ignorant of it, what you should be doing is rebuking the church for abandoning these historical creeds and tell the church to start studying these historical creeds. Okay, but all right, well, let's continue. He gave it to us for the, for the world and for the ages, and I thank God on my knees for them. Well, now not only, not only do the historic church say that the Holy Spirit is God, but the Scriptures say that the Holy Spirit is God. And I might say this to you, that if the church said it and the Scripture didn't say it, I'd reject it. 
I wouldn't believe an archangel if he came to Toronto with a wing spread at 12 feet, shining like an atom bomb, uh, just at the moment it goes off, if he couldn't give me chapter and verse. I want to know it's here in the book. I, I am not a traditionalist. And, and, and anybody comes to me and says, it's traditional, I say, all right, very nice. Interesting, if true, but is it true? Give me verse and chapter. So I want to know now, were these old brethren, when they said all this, were they telling the truth? Well, listen to what the Scriptures have to say. The Scripture says he's God, gives to him the attributes that belong to God and the Son and the Father. For instance, 139th Psalm, it says there that, Whither shall I go from thy spirit, and whither shall I hide from thy presence? That is, omnipresence, not even the devil. <laughs> okay, he's, he's acknowledging now the omnipresence of the Holy Spirit, which earlier he seemed to be denying the omnipresence of the Holy Spirit. Now, remember, we if you've been a part of our Bible study exercise, we did a little bit of this. I borrowed one of the books I used in one of the seminaries I went to, and uh, we, we started working through it in a very much more in an academic kind of a very you know, not, not the most exciting way, but we went through a lot of this. And some of you who have been working on the topical study, hopefully you've found scriptures that show, oh, the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. And the Holy Spirit, you, you, you've seen uh, some of those scriptures in your work. But uh, let's continue. It's just funny, like the, the church, the Holy Spirit's left the church. Uh, well, well, no, the Holy Spirit's omnipresent. Well, then he didn't leave the church. So the problem in the church can't be the absence of the Holy Spirit. So... I still don't really know. What is the diagnosis to the problem and what is the solution? He still really hasn't articulated how this is a solution. And I'm trying to hurry. I'm trying to hurry. So we're going to try to finish this. Here we go. ...is omnipresent. Only God can claim omnipresence. And the psalmist attributed omnipresence to the Holy Spirit. Then in Job, he is uh, given the power to create. Job uh, 26 and so on, 33 says, By his Spirit he garnished the heavens and made the crooked serpent. And he said, The Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty has given me life. And there we have the breath, the, the, the breath, the ghost, the, the ghost, the Spirit of the Almighty has given, me, has given me life. So the Holy Spirit is here, said to be Creator. He issues commands, thus saith the Spirit, and only God can do that. He is called Lord in 2 Corinthians 3. And there's a baptismal formula. I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. There's a benediction. The love of God, and the, the grace of God, uh, of Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Ghost. Now, uh, I want to ask you something. Now, this is going to be a little shocking, maybe. But I want to ask you... If, uh, if the Spirit of God was not God, if, if he was not God but something less, if he was a man or an angel or something else, if he just wasn't God, as some people say, then I want to ask you, if the Scriptures don't teach that he's God, I want to ask you how it would sound if I introduced here the name of, say, the Archangel Gabriel or somebody. Suppose that I said, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and St. Paul. Wouldn't that be a shocking, horrible thing? If I said, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Virgin Mary, wouldn't that be a horrible thing? For you cannot attribute deity to St. Paul. You cannot attribute deity to the Virgin, though we honor her, for she was the mother of our Lord. 
the mother of our Lord's body, not the mother of the Lord's deity. For his deity had been before the foundation of the world. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made by him, and without him was anything, nothing made that was made. And the very atoms that composed the body of his mother had been made by the Holy Lord whom she bore. But uh, suppose that we introduced her there, or introduced Gabriel, the archangel, there. And we I do like this argument that the baptismal formula, by placing all three, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, would require all three to be deity, all three to be equal, co-equal, of course, I believe co-equal, co-eternal, obviously, you know, one God, a co-equal, co-eternal, three distinct persons, right? Doctrine of the Trinity. I do like this argument, and it and it and it, it's a very good way of making the point by saying, what if I was to introduce, you know, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Michael the Archangel, or Gabriel, or Paul, or the Virgin Mary. I like that. That really that really makes the point. So that's good. I still don't know how this has anything to do with the um, uh, ultimate th- the the. The, the actual thesis of the sermon, which is we've got these two problems and the disease is the neglect of the Holy Spirit. He's, he's not fixing that. He's now, he, he kind of gave a thesis and then turned it into a very, 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 very surface kind of summary of the basic theology of the Holy Spirit or what we would call pneumatology. And so, all right. So I, I wanted, to, I wanted to get back to the original problem. But let's see what he does here. We'd say the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the archangel Gabriel. Everybody would run for the door. They'd say there's heresy in that church. It would be a horrible thing to introduce an archangel or an angel or a man in where the Holy Spirit belongs. Never, never, my brother. The Holy Spirit is God. And the most important thing here tonight is that the Holy Spirit is present. There is unseen deity present. Now, I cannot bring him here. I can only tell you that he is here. That is all. I can tell you that he is present in our midst, a knowing, feeling personality. He knows how you're reacting to what I'm saying. He knows why you came. He knows what you're going to say as soon as you get out on the sidewalk. He knows how you're thinking now. He knows you're up rising and you're down sitting and understands your thought afar off. And you can't hide from him. He's present in our midst. I will send another comforter to you, and he will abide with you. So he's here among us. We're here met as Christians in this. Most of us are Christians here. And there's an invisible presence here. And we can't see him, but we know he's here. Now, he is, as I have said, indivisible from the Father and the Son. And he is all God and exercise all the rights of God. And he merits all worship and all love and all obedience. That's who the Holy Spirit is. And here's a beautiful thing about the Holy Spirit. Being the Spirit of Jesus, you will find him exactly like Jesus. A lot of people have been frightened, you know, by, uh, by people claiming to be filled with the Spirit and acting any way else but uh, like the Spirit. Some people, when they say they're filled with the Spirit, they are very stern and harsh and abusive. And uh, others do weird things and... 
And uh, they say that's the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit is exactly like Jesus, just as Jesus is exactly like the Father. He that has seen me has seen the Father, said Jesus. And I will send you another comforter, and he will take the things of mine, and he will show them to you. He'll demonstrate me to you. Now, what does the Holy Spirit think of babies? Well, what did Jesus think of babies? He thought of babies just what the Father did. And the Father must think wonderfully well of babies because the Son took a baby in his arms and put his hand on his little bald head and said, God bless you, and bless the baby. Maybe theologians don't know why I did it, but I think I do. Because there's nothing sweeter and softer in all the world than the top of a little baldy baby's head. And Jesus put his hand on that little soft head and blessed it in the name of his Father. Well, now the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. What does Jesus think? What does the Spirit think of babies then? Well, the Spirit thinks of babies just exactly what Jesus did. What does the Spirit think of sick people? Well, what did Jesus think of sick people? What does the Spirit think of sinful people? What did Jesus think of the woman dragged into his presence, taken in adultery? The Spirit feels exactly the way Jesus feels about everything. He is the Spirit of Jesus, and he acts exactly the way Jesus acts. If Christ Jesus our Lord, we could think him here in person. If he had that old toga on or walking quietly down the aisle, wouldn't be anybody run from Jesus. Nobody. They came to him. Mothers brought their babies. The sick came. The weary came. The tired came. The, the, the dispossessed came. Everybody came because he was the most magnetic person that ever lived. Even old Frederick Nietzsche, that, uh, that nihilistic German philosopher that brought on World Wars I and II, they tell me, he laid the foundation work for the Nazis. That, uh, that old, old ungodly fellow, he said, I like Jesus, I love Jesus, but I hate that man Paul. He couldn't take Paul, but he said he loved Jesus. And you will not find anybody saying very much against Jesus personally, because Jesus was the most winsome, the most loving, the most kindly, the tenderest, the most beautiful character that ever lived in all the world. And you know what he was? He was demonstrating the, the Spirit. He was demonstrating that's the way the Spirit is. So in all these sermons that I'm going to preach about how to be filled with the Spirit, how to walk with the Spirit, what difference does the Spirit make? And what is the promise of the Father, and how can we receive him? In all of this, I want you to think of the Spirit as cultured, gracious, loving, kind, gentle, just like our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, uh, he's friendly, the Holy Spirit's friendly. We try to make him something else but friendly, but he's friendly. And because he's friendly, he may be grieved, as I said before, and uh, we can grieve him by ignoring him, by resisting him, by doubting him, or by sinning against him, by refusing to obey him, by uh, uh, turning our backs on him. We can grieve the Spirit. But you know there's one thing. There must be love present before there can be grief. Let me give you an example. How long can I preach, brother? Hmm? I don't, want to, I don't want to take all your time. It's uh, 18 after. I should be through another five minutes, shouldn't I? Hmm? Well, uh, the Holy Spirit 
I said was friendly. And uh, he can be grieved, and he can be grieved because he's loving. I suppose you had a 17-year-old son, and uh, that son of yours began to go bad. I pray this might never happen. Thank God it didn't happen with our six, any of them, but I, I hope it'll never happen with any you may have or love. But suppose you had a 17-year-old boy, and he got to that age, you know, where he wanted to take things in his own hand. And suppose that he joined up with some boy you didn't know, some stranger from another part of town, and they got into trouble. And you were called down to the police station. And you went down, and here sat your boy and another boy you'd never seen in handcuffs. You know how you'd feel about it? You'd be sorry for the other boy, but... You didn't love the other boy because you didn't know him. But with your own boy, your grief would penetrate your heart like a sword. For only love can grieve. And if those two boys were sent off to prison, you might pity the boy you didn't know. But you'd grieve over the boy you didn't know. A mother can grieve because she loves. If you don't love, you can't grieve. So that when the scripture says, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, it is telling us that he loves us so much that when we insult him, he's grieved. When we ignore him, he's grieved. When we resist him, he's grieved. When we doubt him, he's grieved. But also we can please him by obeying and believing, and when we please him, he responds to us just like a pleased father responds, just like a pleased mother responds. He responds to us because he's pleased, because he loves us. Now, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto Avenue Road Church. The Spirit saith unto the churches and to this church, the restoration of the Spirit to his rightful place in the church, in this church, in your life, is by all means the most important thing that could possibly take place. If you were to increase the attendance until there wasn't a place to put them, if you were to get 10000 or $20,000 given to you, if you were to have anything that they have in churches that men want and love and put value on, and you didn't have the Holy Spirit, you might as well have nothing at all, for it is not by might nor by power, but it's by my Spirit. Not by the eloquence of a man, not by good music, not by good preaching, if this might pass for some kind of preaching, but it is by the Spirit that God works his mighty work. I said this morning that we had better throw ourselves back on God, for there will be a day when we'll have nothing but God. I didn't know when I said that, that last night around midnight, my friend Cecil Thomas got to a place suddenly where he has nothing but God. Nothing. He had friends all over the world. He had a big car. He had lots of things. But now he has nothing but God and his nice little wife. Nothing but God. And we'd better now, while we can, do something about it, my friends, and uh, bring the Holy Spirit of God back into the church, back by prayer, back by obedience, back by confession, until he takes over. Then there will be life and light and power and victory and joy and fruit, and it will come to us. 
And we can, we can live upon a different level altogether, a level we never dreamed was possible before. Do you believe that? Oh, it's so, my friends. So I'm going to stop tonight, for all I've done is taught. I haven't given any, I haven't given any evangelism. I've just taught tonight. What is the Spirit? Who is the Spirit? How do we know who the Spirit is? We know by the Scriptures. We know because the Church Fathers knew what the Scriptures said. And uh, he is in our midst. But unless he is feelingly in our midst, unless he is uh, consciously in our midst, that is, we're conscious of it, he might as well be somewhere else. Because it's possible to run a church without the Holy Spirit. That's the terrible thing. You organize it. You get a board and a pastor and a choir and a ladies' aid and a Sunday school and, and you get all organized. And I believe in organization. I'm not against it. I'm for it. You get and get organized and then you get a pastor to turn the crank and that's all there is to it, you know. The Holy Ghost can leave and the pastor goes on turning the crank and nobody finds it out for five years. Oh, what a tragedy, my brother. What a horrible tragedy to the Church of Christ. But we don't have to have it that way. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Now, to this kind of preaching, having your old church is going to do one two things. It's going to bring your action from it. In which case, as I said to somebody, I came and I can go again. Or there is going to be an eager seeking, and I believe the latter will be the case. I believe that there will be an eager seeking for better things than that we now have. And so we're going to seek God together these nights. Next week, come back and tell the people about it. We'll talk about the promise of the Father and show how that promise which is for you has its roots way back into the early chapters of the Scriptures and on down the years. We'll go on and on night after night. We'll develop this and show finally how to be filled. Taking this down. There you have it. That was A.W. Tozer. I don't know how the year, but him preaching on the Holy Spirit. His thesis was there's two symptoms in the church. The church has become a social club, and the church is no longer content with just a Bible and a, a, and a hymn book. It's brought in all these fleshly ideas and fleshly concepts and pragmatism and all of these gimmicks, and that's the issue. The disease is because we've neglected the Holy Spirit. He never really told us how to fix it. He, he's really kind of set up this concept that I think is in, is in the... It's kind of built into the theology of a lot of people. It goes something like this. So, so we're indwelled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is all-powerful. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent. The Holy Spirit has all the attributes of deity. He's inside of us, but somehow it's up to us. Like the Holy Spirit's in me. He's indwelling me, but... I can basically live my life without the Holy Spirit. In other words, the, the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. He can be in the church. He's indwelling believers, but we can so neglect the Spirit that, well, nothing, the Spirit's not really there, so we basically become dead spiritually. So we have, we, we have to do certain acts. We have to seek God, obey God. We, we have to do things. If we do things, then we activate the Spirit. It's almost like the way some teach this, Okay, I, I know this is going to sound 
this may be a dumb illustration, but it's because I'm running out of time here because we've already been so long and I know people have got other things to do, but let me try to explain it. Some people teach it that it's this way. Think of the church. Think of it as there's, okay, a bunch of people and we're standing there and we're looking at the yard, right? We're looking at the lawn of the church, right? And it's got all these, you've got the grass and it's growing. And we're like, okay, guys, we're the church. Let's do something about it. So everyone drops to their hands and knees and they start trying to pluck the grass with their hands. They're doing it in their own strength and they're doing it in their own power, right? And that's a lot of churches who neglect the Holy Spirit. They're out there trying to basically cut the grass, you know, to try to take care of the grass by plucking each blade of, of grass and plucking each weed. It seems ridiculous. It's fruitless. It's meaningless. It's useless. And it's, it's just, and why are you doing that? Or we, by our own actions, if we obey, if we seek, if we do all of the right things, then all of a sudden it's like grabbing a, you know, a thousand dollar riding lawnmower that's the best ever. And all of a sudden, Boom, we start that engine and boom, we cut, we, we cut the grass down in just minutes because now we have power. We, we've now activated the Holy Spirit. So either you're a church that hasn't activated the Holy Spirit or, or you're a believer that hasn't activated the Holy Spirit. So in other words, the Holy Spirit doesn't activate us. We have to activate the Spirit by what we do. And if we do the right things, then the Holy Spirit then activates us so that we have the power. And now we're no longer a social club. And now we're no longer needing all of these gimmicks because now we have the Spirit. But it's this really, like, you have to, here's the list. Here's what you have to do to get the Spirit to work. And you would think, well, wait a minute. The Spirit's already in me. He's God. Why do I have to follow some steps to turn him on? He's already inside of me. Why wouldn't God do the work? It's this really weird concept, and but it, it's, it's a common thing that, hey, look around. See the church? The problem is we, we need the Holy Spirit. I'm like, but we have the Holy Spirit. Yeah, but you've got, you didn't do the right thing. So you didn't seek him. You didn't, you didn't do this. You didn't do this. You didn't, you didn't obey. Well, how much obedience do I have to do before it activates the Holy Spirit? How much disobedience can be in my life before I deactivate the Holy Spirit? It really is this odd concept that I, I, I clearly, I reject. So here, just a couple of things. Obviously, we're still going to continue to work on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit for the Bible study exercise, right? You can go back to the, you can look for the series, Bible study exercise. If you download the Church One app, Church, O-N-E, Choose Us, Theology Central, look for the series called Bible study exercise. I think there's almost 300 of them now. All right. Yeah. Surrender is a key word. That's true. Well, you've got to surrender. You've got to surrender. Well, but, but that, yeah. That, that's, that's a very good point. That's very, very good. We'll have to do some work on that. That's a very good, uh, very good point. But you, yeah, you've got to do your, your stuff. But so go back and listen to all the things we've already done in, in regards to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Um, and we'll, we'll continue to work on it. And we'll, we'll try to, we're going to do a lot of work, hopefully this coming weekend. And, and oh, I, I'm going to do the, mo- the most I can to try to make sure we bring this series to a, a hopefully a very power, hopefully, a, I don't want to use the word powerful, a hopefully a very beneficial conclusion. I'm, I'm really going to try that. But if you want to see a little bit more of what A.W. Tozer taught in regards to the Holy Spirit, if you download the version app, the version Bible app, version Bible app, 
which like 500 million people have downloaded, do a search for Theology, Theology Central, choose us as your like church, and you'll see that the featured plan is A.W. Tozer's kind of devotional on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. There's much there that I disagree with. Like there's a lot here that just didn't, and sometimes he acted like the Holy Spirit was holy, uh, omnipresent. Sometimes he acted like he wasn't omnipresent. Sometimes he acted like he was all powerful. Sometimes he clearly seemed that I had more power of the Holy Spirit than the Holy Spirit has over me. Sometimes it seemed to indicate that we have more power over the Holy Spirit than the Holy Spirit has over the church. There's lots of, of contradictory issues going on here, but I want you, I still want you to hear his perspective. So you've got the curriculum. If, if you're listening and you want access to our curriculum, just email me, newsif at yahoo.com. We'll send you a link. It's free. We don't, uh, the curriculum is to supplement what we do here. Um, and we're just going to continue to work on this. And uh, there you have it. So I will, I will leave you with this. Because And I, this is going to kind of be somewhat divergent of the Bible study exercise, but that's okay. That's what happens when you review sermons. He, he gave us two symptoms that he thought was present in the church in his lifetime, and I believe the two problems are still present in our lifetime. The church has become a social club, and the people in the church are no longer content with just the Bible and the hymn book. They want activities. They want programs. They want entertainment. They want all of these other things. What is the cause of those two problems? What is the cause of it? And what is the solution? You heard a sermon where he proposed the problem is neglect of the Holy Spirit. He didn't really explain how that works and how to fix it. So I will. those problems do exist. What do you think is the disease that causes those two problems? And what do you think is the solution? Email me your best answer, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. And if you get it right, uh, that you, you got it right. I, I'm not, I don't have anything to give you, but, but at least you can take pride that, no, it will be just your thoughts and we'll see, all right? But I'll stop right there because it's been an hour and 36 minutes. I greatly apologize for going so long, but... When someone suggests something, I always try to get to it. The person who probably suggested the sermon probably never thought I was going to get around to it, but I finally did. And uh, well, hopefully this has been beneficial. Email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. I've got to stop because my iPad is about to die. All right, because well, I've, 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 I've wiped out the battery. All right, thank you for listening. Everyone have a great evening. I don't think I'm going to do anything else. Who knows? Maybe a midnight I'll turn on the mic and go live again. Who knows? We'll just see how the rest of the night goes. Thank you for listening. Everyone have a great night. God bless.